When I was a teenager, I was in Pathfinders. Anybody else in Pathfinders when they were in their teens or really you can be a Pathfinder at any age? But I had an experience on a Pathfinder camporee that really touched my heart. Uh, maybe you've had those moments where there's just something that happens and you sense God's presence in your life in a more tangible, powerful way. We were there at Wallawa Lake, which is in Oregon. It's a beautiful, natural lake, um, beautiful mountains around. We were there at Wallawa Lake, and as the sun was setting, casting that golden glow on the hills across the valley. We were singing a song. It was a song called He's Ever Over Me, which says, I will lift my eyes to the hills and their creator, who made all heaven and earth. For he watches me, never sleeps, no, never slumbers. He's ever over me. And the words continue. But a song about God as the the maker of the mountains who's looking after each one of us, lovingly caring for us like a father. And as we were singing these beautiful words and I was looking up to the beautiful mountains, I just was filled with awe at the wonder of our wonderful and amazing God. Maybe you've had an experience like this before. Words are powerful. Music is powerful. The beauty of nature is powerful. And when it all comes together in one moment, it's even more powerful. This morning, I want to go back to the Songs of Ascents in the book of Psalms. And I want to actually study the passage that the song was written about, Psalm 121, combining the power of music, lyrics, and the amazing things that God has made in nature. So open up your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew in front of you. Psalm 121. We spoke last week about the songs of ascents, these 15 psalms that were sung as pilgrims were traveling three times a year to the major festivals in ancient Israel, and perhaps also as the choir was going up the stairs to the temple singing these specific songs. Psalm 121. It doesn't ascribe this particular psalm to someone, although a number of people believe it was David. But there the psalmist in verse 1 says, I will lift up my eyes to where? To the hills. Well, there's something about mountains and hills that's pretty awesome and inspiring. They're fun to look at. They're fun to paint or take pictures of. For me, they're fun to climb. Um, the great mountaineer um, was asked, you know, why do you want to climb Mount Everest? He said, because it's there. It just seems so obvious. The mountains are there. I, I just want to go climb them. I want to be in them. And the psalmist here, he says, I will lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? Now, in those days and in that culture, the people who were not worshiping God faithfully, they did other things on top of the mountains. They had the high places up there. That's where they were worshiping Asherah. Uh, 
little uh, figurines to the fertility goddess. Or they had Baal that was being worshipped there in those places. Uh, Baal, the god of thunder and the storms and the rains and so forth. So other things happened on top of those hills. But the psalmist, as he looks to the hills, he recognizes that his help doesn't come from the high places that may or may not have been in those hills. His help comes from the one who made those hills. Look at verse 2. My help comes from the Lord. This is the covenant name for God. It's probably all in capital letters for you. It's the name Yahweh or Jehovah. We're not sure exactly how to pronounce it. We've lost the vowels over time. My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. In those days, those who weren't worshiping the Lord, if you were worshiping Asherah, uh, Asherah was good, but she only had a domain or jurisdiction over certain areas of life. She could help you with fertility and perhaps other things. Baal could help you with the storms, allegedly. Although we saw how well that went for Ahab and Jezebel uh, when they were confronted with the prophet on top of the mountain. Three years of no rain, Baal uh, couldn't get the job done. But in those days, the gods were viewed as territorial, I remember reading a story in the Old Testament where a battle takes place, the Israelites versus uh, some of the other peoples nearby, and they fought in the mountains. And after the other people lost, they said, well, that's because our gods are the gods of the plains. We were fighting in the wrong geographic location. We need to draw them out to the plains where our gods are the big dogs, the alpha males. That's where we will have success. And they forgot who they were fighting against. (laughs) Because the Israelites show up on the scene, God shows up, the Lord shows up, and he doesn't claim to be the God of the hills or of the seas or of fertility. He claims dominion everywhere. And rightly so. He is the God, as the psalmist says, who made heaven and earth, which includes all mountains. The mountain maker claimed territory everywhere. Which, as you think about it, when you go back in your mind to the story of the Exodus and the ten plagues that fell on Egypt, God was not just trying to let his people go. He was also claiming supremacy over all the Egyptian gods. What was one of the first plagues? Uh, The water turning to blood, even the Nile. Ancient Egyptian culture worshipped the Nile. They thought that was a god in itself. Well, God showed the Egyptians who's really the boss of the Nile. Uh, They had gods for cattle. They had gods for the sun and the, the, the light and the darkness. Every plague was God asserting supremacy in that domain and area of life. There should have been no doubt. The Egyptian gods are nothing. There's only one God. There's only one true Lord. And so the psalmist doesn't look to the hills and the Asherah poles and the the Baals. He looks 
to the mountain maker who made heaven and earth. Verse 3, it says, He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Now in Hebrew, in verse 3, the, the language is more that of request. It, it could read, may he keep you from moving, your foot from slipping. May he keep you from slumbering. But then there's a response. And if you think of this as a song, verse 3 could be a solo, where somebody in the choir steps forward and sings this request or this petition to God. And then the chorus comes in and they say, Aha! He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God, the mountain maker, has got your back. He's going to help you. Now there's a word that's repeated, at least I found it six times in this passage. Now I don't know how, I'm reading from the, King, the New King James today, and in verse 3 there's the word keep. Does anybody have the word watch in verse 3? Okay. Um, and then in other verses we'll see another word that's sometimes preserve. So it could be keep, it could be watch, it could pre- be preserve or guard. It's all the same word. It's the word shamar, which has this idea of God keeping or watching or preserving, guarding us. In fact, the very first place that this word shamar is used was God told Adam and Eve, here's the garden, you're to live in it, and you're to keep it. You're to watch over it. You're to carefully tend the plants, see that they are successful and that they are prosperous. They were given a job to guard, to keep, to preserve the life that was in the garden. Um, Interestingly enough, when they failed and rebelled against God, God used the same word in appointing an angel with a flaming sword to stand guard, stand watch over that garden. Uh, so that nobody could enter and, and gain access as sinners to the tree of life. So this word has a broad meaning, but we think of it here, because of the psalmist does this, as God who is our preserver, our keeper, the one who's watching us, the one who is guarding us. And notice how it describes him as guard. How often does he fall asleep on the job? Never. Praise God. During the Civil War time, and you're familiar with some of those stories, if you fell asleep on the job, they could execute you. They could kill you because it was a sacred duty to stand watch and to stay awake because lives were in your hands. God, as our keeper, as our watcher, as our preserver, he doesn't sleep. He's always on call. Some of you know what it's like to be on call in your job. And when you're on call, you're never fully relaxed because at any moment, you could get a phone call. Got to go into the hospital. Got to get back to work. God's always on call. And he likes being on call. He enjoys being there for us. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Shamar, he's the one guarding, preserving you. The Lord is your shade 
at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now that may sound like a bit of an odd... <laughs> you ever gotten moonburned before? <laughs> Put your moon screen on. We're going out tonight and there's, you know, a fairly full moon. This is an example, I would suggest, of poetic mirrorism. We say, I searched high, I searched low, I couldn't find it anywhere. I searched everywhere. God is looking after us, whether it's in the daytime or in the nighttime. God was literally the shade for his people in ancient Israel as they were in the wilderness. That pillar of cloud at night, excuse me, in the daytime, literally providing shade, and then a pillar of fire at nighttime, providing light, um, providing maybe some warmth, um, providing that assurance that he was with them. So God is our keeper. He wants to be there to be our shade. These words, I think, will be especially important. You know, in Revelation chapter 16, one of the seven last plagues is that the sun scorches the earth. Now, praise God, we, we've talked about this in other places. God's people are preserved and protected during the seven last plagues. In Egypt, it was only the first three that affected everybody, and then the last seven only affected the Egyptians. The seven last plagues God's people are protected from and so I think these words, Psalm 121, are going to come back to us, whatever that looks like specifically, in those final days before the Lord's return. When the sun is scorching the earth, whatever that means specifically, we will remember that God is our garter, our keeper, the one watching over us and preserving us, whether it be in the day or whether it be in the night. Verse 7, the Lord shall what? Preserve you, or keep you, or watch you. Watch over you, keep you, preserve you from all evil. The Lord shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth, even forevermore. Now sometimes, if we're honest, passages like this can be a little confusing. You read Psalm 91 and, and those assurances of God's protection and deliverance. And we read words like this, and we think, I love these words, but my life is difficult. And I've experienced tragedy in my life. And we have a little bit of a hard time trying to harmonize our experience with difficulties and some of these promises for preservation and protection. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, I mean, I love the story, A Thousand Shall Fall. Have you read that book about the, the German Seventh-day Adventist? Was he a pastor also? Mr. Hazel, who was literally preserved in the German army to, to follow God, to keep the Sabbath every single day except for once when he lost track of time when they were retreating or something from the enemy. And his story is incredible how God literally saved his life and thousands fell at his sides, but he was delivered. Those stories are inspiring. 
But there are also other stories of faithful Christians, people who were paying their tithe, people who were keeping the Sabbath, and who had disaster fall upon them. And so we need to approach these verses with more nuance, uh, more uh, appreciation for the broader context of Scripture. What do I mean? Well, let me give you an example. Uh, keep your finger or your, your whatever in Psalm 121. I want you to go to the book of Luke really quickly. Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 21 and verse 18. Luke 21 and verse 18. So, as we've talked about before, when you're trying to understand a passage, you need to read it in its context. And sometimes that means just a few verses, or the whole chapter, or the whole book. Sometimes it means the whole Bible, to get a better understanding of what it means. Recall that in the Psalms itself, it doesn't promise our life will always be rosy. Psalm 23, Yea, even though I walk through the valley of bubblegum and and happy things, and Disneyland, there your hand will... What's it say? The valley of the shadow of death. Even there your hand will lead me. David recognized that it wasn't always rainbows. There were times when God would lead him and us through a deep, valley in our experience. So even just in the context of the Psalms, we recognize life isn't going to be this prosperity gospel where if you just give this money to the church, everything is going to go smooth for your life, and if things go bad, it's because you have bad faith. People with good faith still end up going through bad things. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. And what happened to him? God had a purpose for Christ's sufferings, for Paul's sufferings, for John the Baptist's sufferings. Okay, so Luke 21, look at verse 18. This is a powerful passage. Luke 21, verse 18. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. That's good news, amen? If you've lost hair, God knows where your hair is. It's not lost. God knows where it's at. But he wasn't talking about that. Look at verse 19. By your patience, possess your souls. Jesus saying, listen, your hair will not be lost. But two verses prior to this, notice what he says. Because if we only read that, we would think nothing bad will ever happen to us. Look at verse 16. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to what? To death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. And then verse 18. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. Now, how can you die and then Jesus say, 
not a hair of your head will be lost. It's because Jesus realizes that there are things even bigger than death right now. He is trying to save us not only from sin and suffering and and the bad things of this world, but ultimately, he's saving us from the second death. That's ultimately the thing that matters most. Which is why he could say things like, whoever seeks to save his life will what? Will lose it. In other words, if you're trying to save everything you have right now by not surrendering, well, you're going to miss out on everything. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will surely find it. It's only through the path of surrender to the mountain maker, the the one who made the universe, that our life can truly be secure. Jesus knew some of his disciples would go through difficulties. He knew some of his disciples would even lose their lives. His closest ones basically all did, except for John and Judas. He lost his life in a different way. But Jesus could promise them, I'm going to take care of you. Even the very hairs of you, I know every detail of your life, and you're going to be okay even if things aren't okay for a while. You see what I'm saying? We can be okay in the big picture, even if the smaller, close-up picture in this moment is not okay. We tend in our culture to associate good things with things being good. But sometimes it's the bad things or the things that seem to be bad that are what we need most in life. Hezekiah wanted more life. He wanted a longer life. And God went ahead and gave it to him. But in his extra bonus years of life, he didn't use them for the best things. Only the one who sees the biggest picture is capable of knowing what's best for us. Some of us won't surrender unless we are brought to our knees. Now this, either this fall or perhaps in January, I'm going to do a whole sermon series on why is there so much suffering in the world. Uh, I'm going to attempt to tackle this very big and difficult problem. So, so, Just know there's more that's coming on this topic, but know that Jesus, who sees the end from the beginning, if your life is entrusted to him, no matter what happens now in this world, your life is secure in him. That's why the Apostle Paul could say things like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because he had entrusted his whole life to God. And so whether he lived now a long life and a long ministry, or whether he gave up his life for the gospel, he knew he was okay. And I wonder if it's in that spirit that the psalmist, recognizing if you've entrusted your life to the mountain maker, the one who created heaven and earth, even if you go through these dark valleys, God is still there with you.
And you know, resurrection can be found even in the book of Psalms. Uh, I may preach on that passage next week. But there's evidence that, that they knew about the resurrection even in the book of Psalms. Jesus said, don't fear those that kill the body but can't kill the soul. If your life is secure in Christ now, you are secure in him. And your destination, your ultimate security is in him. Let's go back, finish out this passage briefly. Psalm 121. David, or whoever authored this psalm, he had an experience where he'd, ex- he'd seen God deliver him miraculously. He'd seen God rescue him from amazing difficulties, impossible odds. And so he knew that God could keep and preserve everything about life right now, but he also knew if that was lost, God still was preserving you until that day. Until that great day. The Lord, verse 7, shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. You know, when we die in Christ, our identity, now the soul is not this disembodied portion of us. It's the whole being. Everything about us is preserved. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. And he says, verse 8, the Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even for how long? forevermore. So he has in mind not just the short-term immediate, but this eternal focus. God will preserve you forevermore. From this time forward and forevermore. My dad loved to read books. Loved to read books. All sorts of biographies and true stories and missionary books and adventures and mountain books and all sorts of things. But I remember, I just remembered this book yesterday. There was a book called, it was an autobiography, it was called Mover of Man and Mountains. And it was about a guy, his name was R.G. Letourneau, who was a early developer and inventor and engineer and designer of massive earth-moving Uh, machines. We'll put a picture up on the screen here of some of the things that he developed. Um, You can see the scale next to that VW, and and you see these kinds of things moving Earth uh, even today. He was the first guy to develop the use of those massive oversized rubber tires. Previous to him, they didn't use it, but they worked so well that that's just standard today on this kind of heavy machinery. He developed all sorts of things. In World War II, 70% of the machinery used by the Allied forces were from his company. Amazing. Uh, There's a 1,500-mile highway in Canada. Uh, It goes into Alaska. And and his machines helped build at least half of that. Um, All sorts of different projects. The road to Hoover Dam. Uh, one of those roads was built by him. He had a shop, interestingly enough, or an engineering um, facility in Stockton, California. He grew up in California. But this guy, as amazing and as ingenuitive as he was, he was first and foremost a Christian um, and somebody who went around preaching the gospel. If you want to read a good book, 
mover of man and mountains is a really good one. I feel like I'm on Reading Rainbow, that old PBS show. But don't take my word for it. Dun, dun, dun. Some of you may get that. Um, but as you looked at his machines, and I saw some videos of some of these old things that were used, even like tree-crushing machines. It had these massive metal wheels that would just demolish and smash the forest if you needed to, which is not really great for today, but they had some purposes in various times for that kind of thing. But when you look at what he designed, you say, man, that guy, he had a great mind. And he was a great designer. And he did some impressive things. It takes a lot of power to move mountains, to move big piles of dirt. But as I was reflecting on this, I of course realized it takes a whole lot more power to create the mountains, to build the mountains. And when I look at the mountains, and I invite you to think of this, when you see the mountains today, tomorrow, later on, or you look at mountain pictures on your iPhone, remember the maker of those mountains. Think about the power that it must have required to create all of this. Not only the mountains, not only our world, not only our solar system, but the entire universe. That's the one that the psalmist is writing about when he says, he will keep watch over you. He will preserve you. He will protect you. He will be with you. Even if you go through the valley of the shadow of death, he, the mountain maker, the universe maker, will be with you from here until forevermore. I want to recapture the awe and wonder of this God, don't you? I want to trust my life better into the hands of this powerful creator and designer. If he can make everything, you think he can help us with our lives? Can he help us with our challenges? Of course he can. He'll neither slumber nor sleep. He's ever over you and he's ever over me. Let's talk to our God right now. Father, we are so grateful that you care about us. As much as we've failed you, it's just amazing that you still love us just the same. You're invested in our lives. You know how many hairs are on our head, how many will be there tomorrow and the next day. And Lord, you're preparing an everlasting place for us. We know that this world has challenges, but we're thankful that you've invited us to go along with you through our lives. So be in our hearts today. Lead us into increasing trust of you. Give us the strength that we need to deal with the challenging circumstances that we'll face this week. And Lord, remind us that you're coming back. When we see the mountains, when we see the world that you've made, remind us that you're going to make all things new someday. Better mountains, better world, a place of no sin, suffering, or death. And we can't wait for that day. We look forward to it. 
And we pray this not in our names, but in Jesus' name. Amen.